I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 19th, 2017. Coming up, we wrap up an interview with nutritionist Miriam Kalamian about her recent book, Keto and Cancer. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here in Boulder, we are ahead of the curve in having a dog off-leash policy. But new findings in the Arabian Desert show that leashes have been around for millennia. A scene carved into a sandstone cliff in northwestern Saudi Arabia shows a bow hunter with 13 dogs, two of them on leashes. The carving dates to over 8,000 years ago, making it the earliest representation of dogs. Hunter-gatherers settled this region about 10,000 years ago. The oldest images from this time depict curvy women. Then, between seven and 8,000 years ago, people here became herders. And that's likely when pictures of cattle, sheep, and goats began to dominate the images. In between, carved on top of the women and under the livestock, are the early hunting dogs. 156 at this site and 193 at a second. All are medium-sized with pricked-up ears, short snouts, and curled tails, hallmarks of domestic canines. In some scenes, the dogs face off against wild donkeys. In others, they bite the necks and bellies of ibexes and gazelles. And in many, they're tethered to a human armed with a bow and arrow. The dogs look a lot like today's Canaan dog, a largely feral breed that roams the deserts of the Middle East. That could mean that these ancient people bred dogs that had already adapted to hunting in the desert. Or they may have independently domesticated these dogs from the Arabian wolf long after dogs were domesticated elsewhere, which probably happened about 15 to 20,000 years ago. Such a relationship would have been critical to helping people survive a harsh environment, as dogs could take down herbivores too fast for humans. This study was published last week in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. As we get older, our immune systems get weaker. Case in point, Most deaths due to influenza A, a respiratory infection, occur in adults over 65. No one really understands what causes this decline in immunity, but a study published last week in the Science Advances, in the journal Science Advances, raises interesting possibilities. In younger people who are infected with this flu, Their immune cells detect the virus via an immune cell sensor specific to that flu virus. The sensor attaches to the virus, which triggers the cell to produce a protein called interferon. Interferons are the body's antiviral agents. Some can be produced pharmaceutically and used to treat viral infections. Unfortunately, this drug version of interferons often creates serious side effects. Getting back to older people, in their immune system cells, the immune system trigger for spotting flu early doesn't work very well. It's similar to an electrical system where the wire from the switch to the light is frayed and the light doesn't come on reliably. In older cells, there are two aspects to the immune system triggers that are likely to fray. First, 
production of a protein that directly causes synthesis of the interferon can fail. Second, even if it's produced, that protein can fail to activate genes that are needed in order to trigger other responses to the virus. Starting with cells from young people, when these genes were turned off in cells grown in the lab, they could no longer respond to the virus. These results suggest two pharmaceutical strategies for increasing immune system responsiveness as we age. One is to add the trigger protein to the immune cells directly. Another strategy would involve activating the genes that oversee the production of interferon. And because currently we don't know whether these pharmaceutical strategies might have serious side effects, well, consider the tried and true advice from your grandmother. If you want to reduce your chances of the flu, get enough rest, eat healthy food, be happy, exercise, and if you're around sick people, wash your hands. All of those are good for your immune system. As we reported last month, astronomers discovered an object zipping through the sky on a trajectory indicating that it came from outside of our solar system. The asteroid is named Aumuamua. It was the first such extrasolar visitor ever seen, and as you can imagine, it generated a lot of speculation regarding its nature and origin, including if it could be an alien spaceship from another star. To look into that question, it's being observed at radio frequencies by the Breakthrough Listen Project using the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. Initial observations showed no unexpected alien signals from Aumuamua. The scientists will continue to analyze the data and make a few more observations in the coming weeks. Supporting that null result are other observations in visible and infrared red light made by scientists around the world led by astronomers at Queen's University in Belfast. Their measurements show that Aumuamua reflects sunlight in a way similar to other solar system icy objects covered with a dry crust. The crust is formed from exposure to cosmic rays for millions or even billions of years, creating an insulating, organic-rich layer on its surface. That dry crust could have protected its icy interior from being vaporized, even though the object was just 23 million miles from our sun in September when it zipped past. The observations also show that it has the same color as some of the icy minor planets astronomers have observed in the outskirts of our solar system. This implies that different planetary systems in our galaxy contain minor planets like our own. These results were published this week in the journals Nature Astronomy and the Astrophysical Journal Letters. In other news from outer space, our solar system is no longer in the lead for the most number of planets around a single star. This is due to the recent discovery of an eighth planet circling Kepler-90, a sun-like star over 2,500 light-years from Earth, observed by the Kepler Telescope mission. The planet was discovered around the star using machine learning by a software engineer at Google AI. Machine learning is an approach to artificial intelligence in which computers learn based on previous examples using a system called a neural network. In this case, computers learn to identify planets by finding in the Kepler mission data instances where the telescope recorded the very faint changes in starlight caused by planets orbiting around and occasionally passing in front of or 
transiting a distant star. The researchers trained the neural network to identify transiting exoplanets using a set of 15,000 previously vetted signals from the Kepler exoplanet catalog. In the test set, the neural network correctly distinguished true planets from false positives 96% of the time. Then, with the neural networks having learned to detect the pattern of a transiting exoplanet, the researchers directed their model to search for weaker signals in other systems observed by Kepler. Other planetary systems probably hold more promise for life than Kepler-90. Kepler-90 is about 30% larger than Earth and is so close to its star that its average surface temperature is believed to exceed 800 degrees Fahrenheit, on par with Mercury. The outermost planet in the system's orbit at a similar distance to its star as Earth does to the Sun, so it is a very compact system and not very friendly for the formation and evolution of life as we know it. The study will be published in the Astronomical Journal. I eat dinner at the kitchen table By the light that switches on I eat leftovers with mashed potatoes. This morning we return to the interview I began two weeks ago with nutritionist Miriam Kalamian. Her new book, Keto for Cancer, is a comprehensive survey of the utility and application of a ketogenic or low-carb diet in the treatment of cancer. Welcome to the program, Miriam, and congratulations on your recent book, Keto for Cancer. I'd like to start off by asking you to define the ketogenic diet, and then you can tell us just how you got into it and how it can be applied to cancer treatments. Oh, yes, thank, Beth, thank you for having me on your show. Um, yes, therapeutic ketogenic diet for cancer uh, is different than, uh, than the, diet, the ketogenic diet for weight loss or ketogenic diet for um, you know, uh, athletic performance. Um, in, in that, we are not just controlling the amount of carbohydrate, but we're also looking at um, con- limiting the amount of protein. So in a therapeutic ketogenic diet for cancer, um, usually it's about 5% of uh, calories coming from carbohydrates. Protein is kept low but adequate to meet the body's needs, and that's a calculation we can do. And then the balance of the energy intake is going to come from fats and oils. Okay, and that just sounds really hard to me to eat that much fat. I know I've come from a, a high-carb background that I've been transitioning out of over the last couple of years, but 80% of your calories from fat sounds like a huge amount. Yeah, it can, it, it can be 80, 85% of the calories coming from fat, and that's roughly, that's more than double, sometimes two and a half times what somebody is accustomed to eating. And, of course, we have this fear of fat built into us, uh, not built into us, drilled into us uh, with our guidelines. Um, so it, it depends on the individual, really. If somebody has had their gallbladder removed, they may have some more issues or at least fear around the, um, of being able to digest fats. So gradually increasing the amounts of, uh, of fat while also adding a, a high lipase pancreatic enzyme. 
uh, that can help an awful lot. And that gradual introduction also for people who are in active cancer treatment, um, that's going to be uh, beneficial as, as well. Uh, and, and then for some people, especially if people are heavy to start with, they're carrying some excess weight around, the fact that it's taking them a couple of weeks to get up to speed with that intake of fats and oils may not be an issue at all. It may actually enhance the effect of the diet, that, that um, what I call inadvertent calorie restriction. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so then how does that high proportion of fat in the diet, how does that exactly affect cancer cells? It's, uh, it's not that the high fat uh, affects cancer cells. Really what's going on by uh, limiting your intake of carbs down to 20 grams or less, sometimes 12 grams for, for something like brain cancer, um, what you're doing there is, uh, is signaling at the cellular level that there isn't enough glucose to maintain, um, uh, to maintain functions based on glucose intake. So the body makes this shift to ketosis, well, first it makes a shift to fatty acid oxidation and then a further shift into ketosis. And uh, ketone bodies can supply um, up to 60, some people say 70% of the brain's energy needs. And that's the critical shift right there, the shift to ketone bodies. Once you're in ketosis, those ketone bodies um, also are not metabolized as readily by cancer cells. So that's how, um, by extension, you get the impact um, on uh, cancer, they're compromised to start with. Their function is compromised. Uh, you know, they're not highly efficient cells. Um, and then you deprive them of the nutrients that they need, and they're further compromised. Uh, and then you hit them with another therapy, because like uh, this diet should never be used uh, as a standalone, I should say, should seldom be used as a standalone therapy. There's usually some other kind of either conventional or alternative treatment going on simultaneous with it. Right. So I got to back up and clarify a few things because I know when I first started reading about this kind of diet, um, some of the terms were a little confusing to me. So I think these are probably new terms to some of our listeners. So essentially what goes on in our cells is that carbs and glucose, which is the building blocks of carbs, is a preferred energy source. So the cancer cells love glucose, but if you starve them of it, then they have to, then all your other cells will turn to using fatty acids, which are the building blocks of fats, and start burning those. So that's the first step. And then what's really interesting is that then those fatty acids get converted in your cells to these things called ketones, which are really wonderful sources of energy for most cells, except not cancer cells. Did I get that right, Miriam? Um, you know, yeah, that was a great job. I mean, this is a, it, the science can be tough, and I like to emphasize with people that they don't have to understand all the science to be able to, um, to do this diet. So I guess one of the comments I'd like to make is that you're, um, you can... You are reducing glucose spikes and the associated insulin spikes, but you are keeping glucose at physiologically normal levels within the body. So you're, you're, it's not like you're going to go hypoglycemic um, at, as far as your body goes, uh, you're, you know, even if it looks that way in, in terms of your blood measurements, because the ketones are going to be making up for, um, um, for the, the difference there. And uh, 
there was another part to what you just said there, Beth. Help me with that. Um, oh, so it was how amazingly uh, efficient these ketones are in terms of cellular metabolism. A lot of our cells, like you mentioned, brain cells really love these things. Right, and um, and the, and that the ketone bodies are really the only thing other than glucose that can the only energy substrate other than glucose that can cross the blood-brain barrier. The fatty acids themselves cannot do, the, cannot do that very efficiently, not enough to keep the brain alive. Um, and that was the other point about uh, fatty acid oxidation creates a, um, a situation uh, within the liver where there's like an accumulation of, um, uh, of acetyl-CoA, and acetyl-CoA is this little tiny molecule. Um, that uh, is used in um, in the mitochondria and electron transport chain. I don't know if that's getting too far out there for um, for your audience, but this accumulation then signals the body to do something with this acetyl CoA, and it's, they are converted, synthesized into ketone bodies. So that's all happening in the liver, mostly some of it in the kidney. It's not happening system wide. But the liver can't use those ketone bodies. So as soon as they're synthesized, boom, they're out in the bloodstream. And because they're water-soluble, they're just taken absolutely everywhere in the body. And they can cross the cell membranes then, just like glucose can? They actually use a different transporter. Glucose uses one type of transporter, and that's an interesting thing about cancer cells, is that the number of these uh, glucose transporters is much greater. Insulin transporters, I mean insulin Yes, transporters also um, in the cell. Um, the ketones get into the cell a different way. They use something called monocarboxylate transporters, MCT transporters, and that's how they get into the cell. And that's one of the things that happens during keto adaptation is a lot more of these MCT transporters um, are added to the cell membrane, so it really helps with the transport of ketone bodies into the cell. Oh, so is that one of the reasons that you talk about this adaptation process, that it takes maybe a period of a few weeks to get used to the diet? Yeah. that's um, The MCT transporters is one thing. The ketolytic enzymes is another. The, the enzymes that are going to be um, helpful in breaking down uh, ketone bodies so that they can be utilized, um, that uh, increases over time. Um, and, you know, there's some other adaptations that are happening system-wide as well. Uh, there's a reduction in insulin or, and an improvement in insulin sensitivity that's going on. That's all part of keto adaptation as well. So it sounds like there's a lot of generalized benefits to the body other than uh, reducing energy available to the cancer, and maybe all these other benefits help you fight the cancer as well? Well, uh, I believe that they do. Uh, it's a house cleaning process. When there's this nutrient sensing at the cellular level that says, hey, we're not getting enough of this glucose that we, you know, would really like to have, so let's kind of shut down some of these extraneous processes that are, are going on. Uh, and the cells that are going to get shut, shut down first are those that are dysfunctional. And we know through, you know, decades of research that um, that the mitochondria in cancer cells is compromised. Structure and function of the mitochondria is compromised, and and so we have this like this uh, robust fermentation of glucose going on in the cytoplasm of the cell instead. So by lowering the, the glucose, 
um, you're sending that signal, hey, shut down these extraneous activities. And I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned earlier about the ketones being able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so maybe that makes this diet particularly effective for treating brain cancers. And I know um, from reading your introduction and from some other um, work that I've read recently that brain cancers, especially in children, can be really difficult to treat. So maybe you could talk about your experience around that because it did get you into this whole field. Yeah, and um, and and that. Um, uh, thank you for that opportunity. That's really important to me. And there is this um, perception out there that um, brain cancer is like it's going to be more effective with brain cancer than other cancers. And I think that that just comes from. I think it just comes from the fact that that's where uh, Dr. Thomas Seafried started in terms of um, the research on it was on his mouse model of uh, aggressive brain cancer. Um, and that came from uh, it being the diet being used for epilepsy. So there was this progression of, yeah, this is the diet used for epilepsy, speculation that, it, that because it, sh- it slows down glucose that it might impact these highly aggressive brain tumors, and that's where Dr. Seafried's research started. Also, you see an impact in brain cancer because it is so rapidly progressing. Other cancers, like a newly diagnosed breast cancer, how can you tell what is working? Is it the, you know, is it the chemo and radiation or is it the diet or some combination of it? But with, the, uh, with brain cancer, you see such a profound difference in, um, in, in, in shutting down um, uh, growth of the tumor I should say, slowing progression of the, of the growth of the tumor, that it becomes more obvious there. And that's how I came to this. In 2004, my four-year-old son was diagnosed with brain cancer, and it was huge when we found it. It was oh, the size of an orange. Oh, that's so young, so young. He was just four years old, and it probably, most likely, had been there since early on in his own development. It was so infiltrated into the tissue of his brain. Mm, so yeah. uh, at the time, you know, 2004, we just, uh, it's like, okay, what do we do? How can we kick this can down the road? It wasn't operable, so he had everything working against him on this. And, uh, and the treatments, you know, weekly chemotherapy for 14 months um, failed. And then another weekly chemo for 12 weeks failed. And then we did some surgeries. And, and tumor grow back. And then we could do a clinical trial and the tumor's growing right through it. And, and now in 2007, we're, we're, we're you know, being told that, okay, well, we're just going to do some palliative treatment on him. Hospitalizations, transfusions. But yeah, this is what we're going to do. And it's like, wow. And it was while I was researching one of the drugs that they were going to give him that um, I, I, to make a long story short, which is the longer stories in my book, and it's, um, I am just so happy to be able to, to put that out there for people so they really see where I'm coming from. Um, I, I found this diet in 2007. I wasn't even looking for it. I was not looking for a diet. I was researching this drug, Dr. Seyfried's research. And what caught my eye was that, that one of the references he was using for this, um, for his speculation, was a study that had been done in the 1990s with two kids children, pedi- you know, pediatric brain tumor, um, who were also palliative. And, uh, and a researcher had put these two children on a ketogenic diet for eight weeks, and the glucose uptake by the tumor in both kids 
dropped by over 20%. So, and the kids were doing great, doing better, quality of life. So it's like, what, what, what do we have to lose by trying this? And with our son, we did a, a calorie, medically monitored, I must say, calorie-restricted ketogenic diet for, uh, for 12 weeks, and his tumor stopped growing for the first time. Wow. This whole ordeal had begun. So we were able, with diet, to kick the can down the road for six years with our son. Wow. And most of that time was good quality of life. That is fantastic. Mm. So, of course, I had to learn more, and that's what drove me into a graduate program in human nutrition. And by 2010, I had my degree, and I've been um, working with people with cancer ever since. And then, of course, the book, um, where I put everything that I could possibly... Uh, that I uh, could possibly put in a book, um, it just kept growing and growing and growing from, you know, from it's, a, it's about three times the size it was originally. And I was able to wrap my son's story along with the science and along with the nuts and bolts of how to implement this diet. And uh, practitioners are contacting me and saying, wow, this is great stuff. So they're getting up to speed, and that's really exciting to see that now they're willing to dip their toes into using keto for cancer. And then, of course, patients are getting, um, people with cancer are getting a lot of information out of this as well. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's like for both audiences. Right, right. And this is truly an encyclopedic reference. It's, you did a fantastic job of presenting the science. And I love how you tied your story in with specific anecdotes. Like we had, we had trouble with this and then we tried that. And it makes it so real. It helps people connect to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so do you, in your practice now, do you treat or see a lot of people with cancer? Is that a significant portion of your practice? That is almost all of it right now, although I'm dipping my toes into the Parkinson's world right now and starting a project with someone um, uh, with Parkinson's who has benefited from the diet. But, yeah, um, there are other people that can help with uh, coaching for other metabolic issues, um, but there, the thing that's different about me is I don't just, it's not just about the diet for me. I understand it's about ketogenic therapies other than that. So maybe ketone supplementation for some people and that it's, uh, and I, I kind of, I, I wake people up to the fact that there are other therapies out there, metabolic therapies that can be combined in ways that may offer, uh, a you know, more impact, uh, longer progression-free times, extended lifespan, quality of life, all of those things, just by changing up the mix of foods that we eat. Right. It's truly remarkable. And I'm forced to speculate, given the history of this diet, first with epilepsy and now with cancer, especially in its effect on brain cells, there could be an effect, this is my speculation, um, if people change their diets to be more ketogenic at an earlier age, that it could maybe be preventive with respect to Alzheimer's. You know, uh, this is a good question. People ask me that all the time about uh, prevention with cancer. And it's like, I got no idea as far as prevention of cancer. Um, You know, we just don't have the data to back it up. But we do have information about uh, Alzheimer's. We know that that takes decades. And if people want to do a, a, you know, a dive on that, go to Georgia Ede's website. It's called Diagnosis Diet. She's got some incredible stuff on there so, and very readable. 
Uh, some of the stuff that's out there is not readable or has some flaws in it, but there's nothing flawed about what Georgia has on her website, Dr. Georgia Ede, Diagnosis Diet. Um, and and uh, the explanation and the graphics involved in bringing it home to people, how they really need to start at an earlier age. And I don't think everybody needs to be, like, ketogenic at 20. I really don't. I think paleo is a really good option uh, in the earlier days up until middle age. But when we when we hit that point, you know, nature really doesn't have much of a role for us after that. So exactly. Exactly protective things for us as we move on and there's so many things in the environment um and it not just like the physical environment that we move through and the toxins that we're dealing with in 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 food um but then then there's this toxic this other level of toxic food environment which is the foods that are pushed on us the types of foods high in sugar high in grains none of these things are benefiting us in the long run so I wish I had known about this 20 years ago. I, you know, I would have made some drastic changes in my diet 20 <laughs> I'm, years ago. I'm, I'm right there with you, Miriam. And yeah. I'm afraid we're just about out of time. We'll have to leave it there. That was nutritionist Miriam Kalamian discussing the role of a ketogenic or low-carb diet in treating cancer. We will link to her book on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett and engineered by me, Chip Granditz. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz. 